Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Freddie Gibbs, the rapper, grew up in Gary, Indiana. It's about an hour outside of Chicago, a Rust Belt town. It also happens to be the home of Michael Jackson, Jackson 5. Freddie will be the first to tell you, Gary is a pretty rough place. Growing up there, he didn't really think much about becoming a rapper, like not once when he was a teenager. He was a good athlete, for one thing, Like a lot of kids in his neighborhood, he had a hard time staying out of the streets. It wasn't until he was a grown man that he learned he had a gift for rhyming, a sense of rhythm, and a voice that commands attention. Freddie raps about the streets, about the time he spent there, about the friends he knows who still are there, about friends he lost. And if there's a central theme in Gibbs' music, it's pain. A few years back, his career took an interesting turn. He started collaborating with Madlib, a producer and sometime MC from California, a guy who makes impressionistic, sometimes strange beats, who's known more for working with artsier, weirder MCs, like MF Doom. The album that Freddie and Madlib made together was Piñata, a record where two very different artists each thrive in their own element. It probably shouldn't work. But it does. The music is strange and beautiful. Freddie still raps about the streets. There's still that same pain there. It just hits you harder. I talked with Freddie in 2019 when he'd just released Bandana, his second album with Madlib. He's since released another record called Alfredo, which he made with another critically acclaimed producer, The Alchemist. Alfredo has earned Freddie his first ever Grammy nomination. Anyway, let's kick this interview off with a song from Bandana. This one's a single from it, Half Main, Half Cocaine. Freddie Gibbs, welcome to Bullseye. Thank oh, you for man. coming on the Appreciate show. Appreciate y'all having me, man. Grateful to have you. Um, I have to say, when you made your first record with Madlib, mm-hmm. I was like, well, they're both good, but that's not the team that I would have... Like, like, if I was playing fantasy rap basketball, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would not have put any money on Madlib and Freddie Gibbs making a record together. Me neither. <laughs> were you? Were you even? Did you? Were you familiar with his music before? Uh, before the two of you got together? Somewhat, but not as familiar as I am now. But a, a little bit, you know what I mean. But um, I, I just look at it as a miracle, man. You know, we came together for some reason, but uh, you know to, you know, make classics. And I think, you know, everything we've done so far in classics, so it was worth it. How did you, how did you, how did the two of you meet the first time you met in real life? Oh, Lambo and Egon put us together pretty much. 
That's your respective managers. Yeah, yep. They, they, you know, they've been working together and been cool, you know, for years. And, um, you know, it was just a mutual thing. It was easy. We made it like the do-over, like drinking sangria or something like that. That sounds good. I think I want some of that right now. After I leave here, I'm going to go get sangria drunk. It's extremely hot in Los Angeles today. Yeah. What did the two of you talk about when you first sat down together? Do you remember? Me and Madlib? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. Really nothing, man. Just about like uh, music that we like. You know what I mean? I found out that his musical palette is uh, huger than most people's. What kind of things were you surprised to hear that he was into? Um, like the 808 type of music. A lot of the newer music, like the Little Babies and the Baby and, you know, the Migos, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, he really into that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, there was a certain kind of underground hip-hop fan who defined their hip-hop fandom by what they weren't into. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine Madlib being that kind of guy. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of it. I never liked that. I never liked, because I've always been so such a, a versatile fan of rap. You know what I mean? I like all kind of rap. I mean, I like Feral Munch, and I like Offset. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, is that weird? Why do you have to be one thing or into one thing or confined to one thing? I thought that's what, like, hip-hop was trying to fight against. That's what, like, guys like Pimp C and... Um, guys like that were trying to fight against they didn't want it all you know the radio and all of that stuff to be all east coast at that time you know i felt like they fought to get it more diverse and it's like now we kind of like did like a 180 you know what i mean you grew up in gary indiana were there mcs in gary that you knew about when you were a kid and a teenager yeah definitely definitely it was guys rapping before definitely before i was rapping mainly the rap guys that uh you know came out of Gary was like guys in the streets because uh to rap at that time you had to kind of be in the streets so most of the you know rap coming out of Gary at that time was like hardcore street gangster ass rap you know that's what I that's what we was around that was our environment so was you do you mean that you had to be in the streets to rap because that was what was expected of those records or simply because there wasn't anybody giving anybody a record deal. Correct. There wasn't anybody giving anybody a record deal. So it's like, you know, the guys that could afford studio time and the guys that, you know, could be in studios were like, you know, gangsters. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't too many Rudy Pooh guys, like, in those studios at that time. Because it was gangsters funding those studios, funding the building, funding the equipment. You know what I mean? So it's like, kind of had to be, you know, a man of respect to be in those environments, period. I feel like when the Midwestern people that I know grew up with, you know, certainly everybody grew up with, in the 90s anyway, with the hip-hop from New York and Los Angeles to a certain extent, right? But it feels like in other places, besides those places, it is really treasured that there is hip-hop that is not from those places from all over the country like you know in kansas city they love e40 correct you know like i'm i'm from the bay area and i love e40 because i'm I'm from the Bay. i mean also because he's great but because i'm from the bay right Mm -hmm. but like those guys always got love in in kansas city missouri because 
that was, you know, that was from a place outside of New York or LA. Like it was not just New York or LA. And the same with Southern hip hop, I feel like in the Midwest, like there was a kinship, not because everybody was physically close, but just because there was an understanding, like we are all not from New York or LA. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know what, man, like, you know, the, the Midwest really is, I think the biggest, um, rap consumer region you know what i mean like i can really see gauge a uh an artist's uh, popularity or reach so to speak like when i see if they can like do shows in like chicago and like ohio and detroit you know what i mean because i feel like those are like their consumer regions more so than they are regions that um produce homegrown rap or hometown Hero. It's hard to come out of the Gary, Chicago, and, 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 and that whole Rust Belt because it's like when you pop out, your own, you know, they try to kill you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, first of all, so, and it's difficult. A lot of the times they're more into outside music more so than championing their own music, you know, at home, you know. I mean, I had to, like, you know, move to the West Coast to start getting, you know, musical notoriety. If I didn't, then, you know, I'd probably be in somebody's prison or, or, or six feet deep. There you were know? a few big national acts from Chicago. Definitely. Common and Twista, Do or Die. Mm-hmm. But not, I'm, I'm struggling to think of more besides that pre, pre-Kanye, you know, mm-hmm. more, than t- more than 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, there was Bone Thugs who were from Cleveland, Cleveland. right? Correct, yeah. There were a few here and there, but when you started rapping, did you think of being a guy from Gary? Rapping was like a way that you could actually make a lifelong career? Yeah, definitely. When I started doing it, I knew that I could do it. I can be a career artist in it, and I know that I can, you know, generate a a decent amount of money off of it. And, uh, you know, I just came in with the sense, since I listened to so many different kinds of uh, music coming up, different kind of genres, I mean, um, of a uh, rap and music period coming up, I feel like my style, you know, um, is, is, is very versatile. I feel like I could rap on, like, uh, different kind of beats. You can put me on a 808 Mafia beat, and then I can go an hour later and go make a song on a Manly beat. I don't like to be confined to a region, nor do I like to be confined to a certain um, sound. You know what I mean? At the same time, I don't want to be all over the place. I want you to know when I put my signature on something, you know. But I want to, you know, I just try to be the most the most versatile artist in the rap game, period. You know, I kind of look at it like positionless basketball, like how Kevin Durant has made basketball positionless. You know what I mean? He can shoot put the ball on the floor and, you know, go to the post, defend, and then he's seven feet tall. It's like nobody that can stay in front of him. I try to treat rap like that. Like, like yeah, I'm from Gary, but, like, what does that really mean? You know what I mean? I'm from a small town in the Rust Belt. You know what I mean? So we're, we're limited opportunity. And the greatest artist ever to uh, grace music, period, is from there as well. You know? And he made music, like, it's like regionless, you know what I mean? It's just like a world thing. It's, it's, it's you know, the, with with that kind of, you know, spirit, I feel like I just carried that into my music as well. Like, I don't even look at it like I'm from nowhere. Like, nigga, I'm from everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can go 
anywhere I want to go, you know, do anything I want to do musically. I don't put a cap on myself musically or in, in any kind of way, you know. Did you know when you were a kid that Michael Jackson and the Jacksons were from Gary? Yeah, definitely. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Definitely. I, that was, I mean, it, that, there's, that's the pride and that's still to this day the pride and joy of Gary Indiana. No question. For forever. They put the city on the map. If the Jacksons never came out of there, it wouldn't be the same, wouldn't have the same aura. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Freddie Gibbs. Your life had already gone down a few different paths before you started getting serious about having a rap career. Yeah. Initially, you were an athlete, right? You you had a football yeah, scholarship. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, yeah, I was playing football at uh, Ball State University. Shout out to Ball State. I remember Muncie, Indiana. Shout out to Muncie, Indiana. Shout out to David Letterman. Yeah, David Letterman. He's definitely the most uh, famous uh, alumnus from that school. But yeah, man, I you know went there, played ball for a year. wasn't uh, doing everything that I was supposed to do. Got kicked out of school. Did you like college? Were you regretful when you got? No, I didn't like college. It was whack. I didn't want to go to school no more, man. I didn't. I didn't, didn't want to do any more scholastic activity after I left high school. I was like, nah, man. I don't want to do homework. Any of that. I was ready for the world, you know, make money and just start having things. I thought that, you know, once you become an adult, you just start automatically having things. But that's not, <laughs> that's not the case. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, damn, well, my car apartment. I'm like, OK, I wanted the 40 acres and a mule. I thought I was supposed to get, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, it steps to getting to the things you want in life. And, you know, I was ready. I was trying to skip a lot of steps. You know what I mean? Skipping school, you know, um, selling crack, selling heroin to get a leg up, all of that stuff was, uh, could have been a detriment, you know, to my life. How did you end up rapping? Were you writing verses before you went away to college? Rodney Allen, that's the reason. My friend Rodney Allen, my, my boy Rod, I grew up, we, we grew up on the east side of Gary. One day, you know, I was working in this, uh, after I got kicked out of uh, college or whatnot, you know what I mean, I'm like 19, 20 years old. So I'm working at this, this janky shoe store called uh, Payless. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm familiar with yeah, this store. Yeah. <laughs> Purveyor my, of vinyl my, shoes. My uncle worked there, you know what I mean? So, you know, my mom kind of made me work there too because, uh, you know, she knew I was, you know, out here trying to be Tony Montana, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so she was like, nah, you about to go somewhere and get a job real quick. So I was working there and, uh, my homeboy was like walking through the village, you know, laughing at me. Everybody's laughing at me because I was working this janky job and, you know, wearing a tie, looking stupid. So he was laughing at me and then he was he had these CDs in his pocket. And I was like, what is this? And then I picked up a CD and I was like, man, it's crazy, dog. I was like, you got your face on a CD, little barcode on it and all this. You signed to a record label or something? He was like, nah, I did all this myself. And I was like, how you do this? He was like, man, all right, man, just come ride with me. I'll show you, you know, how we do it. He a barber, you know what I mean? So I was going to his basement getting my hair cut. So I hear be cutting my hair. I'd be soaking up the game. I'd just be letting him just talk about it. And then he started talking about the studio he was going to. And um, he introduced me to this guy named Finger Road that had a studio in uh, Gary. And uh, once I started, like, going up there with him, I'll just go. I wasn't even thinking about rapping you know what i mean i didn't know if i wanted to get into this the rap way the executive way or be a dj or something or i was like maybe i'll be his manager or something like that 
But uh, once I got in there, man, and then like it was at Finger Roll Studio, and I was just start seeing like the caliber of rappers that was coming in there, and I'm like, man, this ain't good. This ain't that good. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And I was like, man, I could do this. You know what I'm saying? Once I started getting in my head that I could do that, then it was a wrap. You know what I mean? And, you know, the you know the outside forces of things that I was going through in my life, you know, gave me some things to rap about. You know what I mean? Like, I was working odd jobs. I was selling crack. You know what I mean? Uh, losing crack. You know what I mean? Getting beat up by drug dealers for on the money um i was you know beefing with gangs from across the tracks so it was like i had all of that all of that pain crumbled up you know i was defeated so i used all of that to you know become undefeated so i just started like everybody that was like dissing me like and they they, they was making music too so i just started like dissing them back making diss raps of other rappers and gary and stuff like that and then like I was, like, putting my phone number on. It was like I had balls, you know what I mean? Like, everything I was doing was ballsy. It's like, man, at that point, I didn't really care if I got killed or not, you know? It was, the music, the music was kind of like a manifesto. And then, like, you know, Lambo found it, that being an intern, because I put my phone number on it. And then he called me, and the rest is history. And we've been rocking ever since. Did you know at the beginning what kind of instrument you had? I mean, did you ever have a moment where... Because, look, I'm a professional public radio host, right? Right. I'm supposed to have pipes. Right. And I'm fine. I do I do okay in that department. Mm-hmm. I'm not unqualified for Definitely. that job. But you're putting me to shame here. You think so? I think so. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> I, think you, I think you got a heck of an instrument there. I feel like the first time, if, if I was you. Right. You know, you sound different inside your head and outside and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like the first time I talked into, wrapped into a microphone, played it back, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, I sound pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how that's how I felt. I was like, "Oh man, that that ain't bad." I mean, my first rap was probably like some like fifty bar uh, freestyle type thing. I didn't know what it was, you know what I mean? But it was definitely unstructured, but um, it was good. You know, I had patterns, I, and uh, I'm you know light years ahead of the rapper that I was at, you know, 23 years old. But, um, you know, at the time, man, you know, I was light years ahead of the the guys around me. So I stood out instantly. And it was just, you know, I try to trace back to where the rapping ability came from for me because I really don't know, man. You know, I look at it like the Virgin Mary, baby Jesus. I woke up with this stuff one day because I, I definitely wasn't the guy at school being on the desk rapping at school. I never had the dream of being a rapper at all, period. I always knew coming up in my life that I was going to be somebody, some something of notoriety, but I didn't know what it would be. Hopefully, I thought it would be an athlete. That's my dream. I still dream about being an athlete every day. I, I go to the gym and work out like I'm <laughs> going to the NFL. But um, I didn't know what you know where I would make my mark in life, but I knew I would make it in some kind of like, but uh, definitely not rapping, man. Was there like a Gary Indiana section in Murder Dog? It was. I was in it. It was a rap magazine. <laughs> yeah, I was in it. It's, it's crazy you say that. That's the first magazine I was ever in. Uh, it was Murder Dog. And I was in there because um, of my buddy Finger Roll. Like, he was getting, he was one of the, um, you know, main producers in the area at that time. And he was getting notoriety because he was working with a lot of guys from Chicago, like Drama Ward and 
Twister and guys like Traxter, legendary Traxter. Shout out to Traxter. You know, just to see finger roll rubbing elbows with guys like that was motivation because, you know, those were the guys, you know, from the area that you looked up to that you wanted to be like, you know, the Twisters, Crucial Conflicts. You know what I mean? When it came to making music, you wanted to be, you know, especially from a local standpoint, you wanted people from a local standpoint to just talk about you like they talked about them, you know. They used to have Murder Dog at the, you know, like at the at the bookstores that would have a lot of magazines. Right. Like your Barnes and Nobles or whatever. They'd have those racks and racks of magazines. There'd be Murder Dog there. And you'd go and sit there and hope nobody kicked you out while you were reading it. Right. And, you know, <laughs> the great thing about Murder Dog was like, not only would it be like, coming from San Francisco, I, you know, you'd read about all oh, these, these rappers from the film, more these rappers from... HP, this is the Oakland thing, you know, whatever. Right. But you would get, it'd be like, oh, these are, these are the dudes that are happening in Memphis. This is what's happening in Cincinnati or whatever. And it was like a, a window into another world. Right. You know, because you know about the dudes from your city mostly, but you're like, oh, this is everywhere. Like, this is, right. every place has its dudes. That's how I learned about the Bay, Murder Dog Magazine. I'll be like, damn, man, the Bay got so many rappers. I'm like, they their own world. It's crazy. I'm like, these dudes is rich. Cause the, the, the Bay was the first guys, really, that I looked at. Them and, like, 3-6 Mafia, i say, Memphis or something like that. Because I was looking at it, and I was like, damn, these guys don't have, like, major record deals. But these dudes is rich. How do I do that? Your first record deal was not that long after you started rapping. Correct. And it was with a huge record label. Right. You moved out to Los Angeles to work on the record. That's what brought you out here to Southern California. Yeah, straight from high school, straight to the league. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> that record deal lasted years. Not really. How 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 long until a how year. long until you gave up? A year, about about a year. What yeah, was I'd that? say about that, about eleven months. I'd say. You talked about going straight from high school to the league. You know, there's mm -hmm. people there's people who at that age, mm -hmm. you, know, you were what, like in your very early twenties, yeah. right? Like twenty twenty one. It hit the big time that way. And when it doesn't work out, when they can't cut it in the NBA, it's tough to readjust and figure out what the path is. You know right, what I mean? Definitely. <laughs> like you you think, oh well I can just do it, but when it that doesn't happen it's hard to figure out how you go play in Italy or whatever, right? And and come back in two years after you play here in the in the D League or whatever. Yeah. And I wonder what it was like for you, a guy who had not spent half your life planning this out, right? To like get the big break, and you never you never put out a record on that deal. Uh, yeah, it was um, heartbreaking. Uh, I definitely say one of the most like darkest points in my life I could do it you know I could sit up and you know try to act hard and say it was easy to shake off but that was heartbreaking man like to get dropped from your record label I was like man it's the first thing I'm really about you know I can kicked out of school like you know nothing's really like working out for me in life and I'm like man this is the first thing that I'm doing that I'm I'm exceptional at I'm like bro I'm great at rapping like you know I'm like man there ain't that many people that could rap as good as I'm as I could rap it just let me know like no matter how polished I was uh, or skillful I was at rapping, I had to learn the business. The music business was about to take me on a 10-year journey to get to where I wanted to be. 
in the game, I had to really, you know, sit and look myself in the mirror and, and see if I wanted to go on that journey. If I go, if I was to get into DeLorean right now and go back to the that time and be like, hey, bro, it's going to take you 10 years to get here. But look, it's all going to be fine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you just got to go through a grind. You Are you willing to sacrifice it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I wish I could do that for every artist. Like, man, picture yourself 10 years later or six years later or seven years later and and and, and then go back in time and, and and see where you'll be at. I feel like when we're we're about the same age and like I'm lately have been thinking like, oh, I guess I did those things that I set out to do when I entered the real world. Right. But the pain that I remember most vividly was not about how hard I had to work because I loved doing what I was doing. It was it's easy to work hard when you love what you're doing. I mean, it's still hard, but right. but the thing that I remember being the most painful was feeling like if success was a 10 and I was at a one, I wished that I could see when I had made it to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Like I wish that I knew when I was working hard, I could see directly the fruit of my labor and like that I, oh, I moved up a rung today. Right. Whereas I, for most of that time, I, I really felt like I wasn't sure whether I was throwing my work into a hole. Right. I, I wonder if that was part of the challenge for you is that like so much of that is, yeah. you don't know that it's going to work. Right, man. You know I, mean, I mean, you know, yeah, definitely, man. You start feeling like you're doing this music for nothing when you're not, when you're not getting the, notoriety or the um or the praise that you you know deserve and you were i mean like look i'm a public radio host i knew that if i became successful when i was 60 i'd still have a 20-year career ahead of me right. <laughs> you know what i mean right. it would be it would be better for me to be 60 than to be 28 or however old i was you're you're a rapper and you know it's only recently that rappers over 25 has been a thing you know what i yeah, mean pretty much yeah it's, it's it's crazy you know the game's getting definitely getting younger and younger but uh I think that rappers are only not happy nowadays, like if they're if they don't have any money, you know what I mean, or or they're not generating money or generating funds. But uh, as long as you're doing that, I think the popularity thing is a little bit, you know, low on the total, low on the scale now because, uh, you know, I feel like when when I uh, got dropped from my first record deal, um, I didn't know that that you can make money in the music industry without having a record deal. You know what I mean? And so I looked at the guys in the South, I looked at the guys in the Bay, you know, um, their business models and took things from those and kind of created my own, you know, and with the um, implementation of streaming, it definitely changed the game. So uh, I got to a point where, you know, I was making a lot of money and didn't really care about moving to the next level of uh, notoriety or fame with the music. You know I mean? You can get content. So, uh, you know, when I start working on this last project, I was like, all right, let me not be content and let me try to, like, step things up a notch. Because, like I said, on a, on a uh, musical, on a rap, on a lyrical level, there's not many, you know, people that can, you know, compete with what I do. So the remainder of uh, projects that I'm, you know, be putting out, I think they just deserve the best looks, best, best, best window opportunity. What do you think you learned about rapping? In that time, I mean, you got your big break when you had been rapping for a year or something. Right. <laughs> um, I, I I learned about uh, definitely um, taking your time because I used to like write every rap in like three minutes, five minutes, like I was like running a race. I think that's what made me so good at it, like uh, being in a room with other rappers and just trying to compete. That competitive spirit. I'm a real competitive guy, so that really 
made me better at it. Just uh, uh, being around different producers. You know, I was, uh, you know, been fortunate enough to be around guys like Just Blaze and DJ Quick and, you know, all kind of different guys that I learned different things from, different tricks, learning how to record, how to do this with my voice, how to do that with my voice, learning when to breathe, learning when to, you know, uh, pause, not say a word, like uh, being more melodic. Just uh, being able to, you know, witness my own development is uh, it's, it's crazy because I can just go back and listen to where I was, what the, the way I was recording five years ago when I was making, even the way I was recording when I was making Pinata is like night and day compared to the way that I record when I make Bandana. I think you have a really distinctively flexible style as a rapper. Mm -hmm. Like there's a long tradition of gangster rappers with powerful voices and declamatory styles. You know, people who are making pronouncements right whether that voice is deep and rich or you know whether it's easy e and it just cuts through everything right right and i can see your connection you know i i hear scarface when you're rapping you know right maybe the most beautiful rap voice that's ever existed and one, of the, one yeah. of the greatest rappers ever but i also hear especially on these Madlib records, Madlib beats are going all over everywhere. You know, it's not, right. <laughs> it's not, everywhere. it's not the most straight ahead beats in the world to rap over. Right. And you maintain that feeling of effortlessness, even when you're rapping double time, when you're fast rapping. And that is like to maintain your personality and your presence while moving through styles in that way. And, keeping your voice metaphorically speaking what it is when you're bending and flexing to these wild madlib beats is a really impressive thing to me there's not a lot of rappers who can be that flexible and remain themselves right yeah like and, and there ain't a lot of rappers that work with oldest period you know what <laughs> i mean like i feel like if you can't mold yourself to those beats and just get in his world and just accept it then you know, I don't think you're going to come out successful. I uh, read a great interview where what you said that when you first started working with Mad Lib, you listened to uh, one of his collaborations with MF Doom and you said to yourself, all right, I'm better than that. Right. I did. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I could rap like this. I mean, I could rap better than this. Like, I was like, this is what everybody tripping off of? Mad Villain? I was like, mad villain. I was like, okay, yeah, this is cool. I was like, that that was the thing. I was like, and Lambo was like, yeah, man, this is classic right here, man. This, this dude, he's stuck in London. He can't come back. And everybody wanted another album from him and all of this. And, you know, it was kind of like, I felt like Lambo was like challenging me. I like when people challenge me. I like when people tell me, not necessarily saying that he said I couldn't do it, but it's like I like when people put a roadblock in front of me so I could be like, all right, let me knock that shit out of the way. Lambo and Egon never said we got to top this, but they always put the in my face, like this, the classic, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't give a about that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I don't care about that. You know what I mean? Like the mad villain. I'm like, all right, that's cool. You know what I mean? Let me show this dude, like how to really put some real pain on here instead of all these like goofy cartoon metaphors and stuff like that. He's cool. You know what I mean? But I'm like, man, I'm about to like talk about some real stories, some real crime stories, some real street stories, some drugs, tales, some, you know what I mean, some shootouts. Like, I'm about to give you all of that. Ain't nobody ever gave you that on no Mad Lib piece. We'll finish up my interview with Freddie Gibbs after a quick break. 
We'll talk about why he starts every live show with a prayer backstage. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Freddie Gibbs, the rapper. We talked in 2019. His latest album, Alfredo, is nominated for Best Rap Album at the Grammys. We want to let you know that this next segment features some talk about sexual assault, though there is no description of a sexual assault. I know how much you love Scarface. I do, too, the rapper Scarface. And um, one of the things that I love about Scarface as a rapper is his music never feels like it could come from anyone else. It's always very deeply personal. And when he raps about street stuff, which he still does now as a, you know, I guess face is probably in his mid late forties now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. About that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, when he raps about street stuff, even when he was younger, uh, much younger, Mm -hmm. you never felt far from the pain and regret that that stuff engenders, even in a person who succeeds or makes it out or, any of those things, like you'd never lose sight of the sad part of being involved in street stuff. Right. Which is, you know, even if you're the world's greatest drug dealer. Right. And you didn't get caught and you didn't go to jail and you got rich, you still at some point handed drugs to somebody's mom or dad or whatever. There's pain involved, you know, that you never could shake, you know, um, dealing with that lifestyle. There's no happy end of that lifestyle man so you know the best thing you know you could do is you know uh if you gotta deal with that and or be in that life is to you know make you enough where you could like start something else and start another business it may not make it a lot make a, as much money as that initially or whatnot but do something where you you know become an entrepreneur you know what i mean really that's the main thing you know if you gotta hustle 
just hustle yourself up a business. You know what I mean? Like trying to be a career drug dealer is dangerous. And it's dangerous not just to you but your family, man, because you're gonna be you're gonna be gone. Like it's it's inevitable. You're going to jail, like eventually. You uh you still rap about street stuff. Correct. Why is that why is that important to you? Why why is that the choice you made instead of instead of preferring to leave that behind? Correct. Um I mean, really, man, I'm not far removed from it. You know what I mean? A lot of my friends are still in the streets. The rap game has afforded me to be able to not be in the streets. But, you know, a lot of my close friends are still living those lifestyles. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm definitely not on the corner or riding around selling drugs all day. You know, I'm a functioning musician with two kids. You know what I mean? I'm on the road or I'm <laughs> on daddy duty. But uh, once that's a part of you, it's never going to leave you. You're always going to have those stories. It's always going to be those uh, street undertones. And, you know, I come from a place, uh, a place of underdogs. So I'm always going to be thinking with that underdog mentality. I'm always going to feel like I got to rebel or I got to resist or, you know, it's somebody putting something in my way. You know what I mean? Like if I try to run out the room and you put that chair in front of the door, you know what I mean? Like... I'm going to knock the hell out of that chair, you know what I mean, with all my might, you know what I mean? Or if you tell me the door lock, I'm going to kick the door down. I'm going to kick a little bit harder, you know what I mean? Because, you know, at that point, you know, I'm fighting for my life. You were acquitted a few years ago of sexual assault in Austria. Mm -hmm. And you, very much to your credit, have talked publicly about the fact that you don't want your story to be shown as an example of accusations of rape frequently or regularly being false, which they're not right. um, any more than other accusations of major crime. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever tells somebody that just got robbed that they're lying that <laughs> they got robbed. But there, there was a lot of exculpatory evidence in your case um, that eventually led to you being uh, found not guilty. And if I didn't, if I didn't personally, if I didn't believe that exculpatory evidence, you wouldn't be here. Correct. Um, Appreciate that. <laughs> but you know, you were well into your career when this happened. It happened thousands of miles from where you live, right? In a country where. You don't speak the language. You know, you were you were arrested in France and eventually extradited to Austria. And you spent a lot of time either living in Europe because you weren't allowed to leave Europe or in jail in Europe. Right. To to what extent did you trust that there was an end to that in sight? I mean, I, I presume that you knew yourself to be innocent but beyond that to what extent did you think this will have an end i thought it was going to end with me doing 10 years in austrian prison the fact that i knew that i was innocent was the hard part because it was like okay damn if i'm i don't even know this girl like i never <laughs> i never even gave her a high five you know what i mean like if she walked in the room i probably wouldn't even be able to tell you what she looks like right now I'm like, bro, if they can indict me all the way over here and and must, you know, muster enough to whatever is because it was 0. 0.0000 evidence whatsoever linking me to this. So whatever they mustered up to get a 
a grand jury in another country to indict me on something that I definitely didn't do after they've taken my blood, my uh, my saliva, my plasma, my semen, all my body fluids to see if it matched the DNA that they already have there for the rape. And it's a zero, 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 zero match. And you have no evidence of me even touching this girl. If you can do all of that, y'all going to fry me. I'm going to jail. I, I know I'm going to jail because I'm I'm already in a in an impossible position. I shouldn't even be here, you know. So the whole time, my thinking, my notion was like, man, somebody got it out for me. There's got to be. This is I don't. It's some. It's this bigger than the Austrian government. Like I said, this this bigger than Nino Brown. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like, man, it's some 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 power that be. I don't know, man. Because I'm like, this is totally ridiculous. If I was any other person, if I wasn't black, if I, I don't know, maybe if I was a, I think about this, maybe if I was a more popular rapper, maybe I wouldn't have been in that position. Maybe if I wasn't a street rapper, I wouldn't have been in that position. Because one of my first hearings in France, well, the first thing they said, oh, yeah, he, they, gave my, they, they gave a whole gang history on me. He's in a gang from Gary, Indiana. He had gang ties, mop ties. No, we can't grant him a bill. I'm like, how does that come up in a rape case? You know what I'm saying? I, I just was always thinking that, like, man, if I was this person or that person, I wouldn't be in this position. You know, I hate to reiterate it, but, you know, I look at the way things were handled with, uh, like, ASAP Rocky. Like, he got a whole presidential recommendation, you know what I mean? So, you know, for something that, you know, he actually you know did, was found he did yeah, yeah he did got you know found guilty of like i'm not you know it was a lot of people comparing my situation to his and i'm like man hold up like <laughs> ain't no comparison dog you know what i mean like you know like my situation was totally i was you know first of all wrongfully accused man and just uh my country that i pay taxes to they didn't really help me you know what i mean um I feel like I didn't get really any support from the rap community like that. You know what I mean? It was a couple, you know, the, the you know guys that I you know deal with personally. You know, they gave me you know that showed me love, but you know for the most part, and I and I and, and, and I don't you know it don't matter, man. You know what I mean? Because you know I'm, I'm not I'm not crying for the you know support of the rap community at all. I can care less. But I'm saying like you know when there's something like that on the line. I mean, the thing that I thought about was that while, you know, you went, you were arrested while on tour in Europe years after the incident had been alleged to have happened. Right. And by the time you were arrested and ended up having to spend, what, like six or nine months in, in Europe yep, in jail, yep. addressing the situation, you had a kid mm -hmm. that was back home without you. Right. That, that was the first thing that I thought of as a as a parent of three, like beyond being in jail for a significant portion of that time and having to deal with living in a foreign country without any means of income and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was right. just like you couldn't be there for your kid. Right. And I was just I was just seeing my world just crumble, man. Like from that, man. I'm like, man. That was that was probably the worst thing, the biggest thing, like having to like fly my daughter and her mother over there to France and Austria, and my mom. That was that was crazy having to fly my mom over there, and you know just 
man, you don't know jail until you do jail abroad because <laughs> it's a whole different thing, man. You damn near got to be rich to do jail abroad. You know what I'm saying? Like that could have collapsed my whole career. You know, thank God it didn't. Did it change the way you approached your music career and your art? Um, when you when you came came through it, uh, I'm not gonna say it changed the way I approached my career. It definitely changed the way I approach people, everyday people. It was definitely a dark, dark period. Um, after that, psychologically, where I didn't know if I even wanted to even be in the music industry or be in the rap game period. Cause I'm like, man, this is a, this is, this, this is a hazard to this job. Like if a woman could just say that I, you know, raped her out of the blue, man, I can get locked up and go through all of that. I don't want to go through that no more, man. That was mental anguish, physical anguish. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't want to go through that no more. Not only did it like affect my, uh, you know, uh, affect me psychologically with, you know, with wanting to be in a rap game. It affected, you know, the way I treated women, you know. I didn't want to, I, I kind of, I didn't even want to deal with, you know, the mother of my child. I'm not going to say that I resented women, but it was some kind of, some kind of form of resistance, you know what I mean, uh, for a little while, you know what I mean? Um I don't know. I just like, I didn't want to like go out. I didn't want to chill. I didn't want to go on dates. I didn't want to, you know, it was just like really me. It was, a, it was a form of depression, I'd say, you know, um, it was affecting everything from, you know, you know my sex life to all kind of, all kind of things, you know, and then how you like looking for love, you know, in the wrong places. I was reading an interview that you did with, um, uh, actually, with with NPR, with uh, Franny Kelly and Alicia Hid Muhammad, and one of the things that you said was that you pray before shows, mm-hmm. and the way you described it struck me because you didn't describe praying for success in the show, or you know, to have a great show, or to even like, you know, allow me to share my gift or something that you hear people talk about <laughs> how their relationship with God is, you know, which people have gifts, you know, and they should share them. I I'm, I'm, I get that. <laughs> um, but the thing that you said you prayed for was execution was the word that you used, which is to say the like, to be able to do the thing that you were there to do. Right. And I was I was really struck by that. Right. Yeah. Um, when I go do a show, man, like, um, it's crazy that you mentioned like gifts people have and they want to share them. I guess I am sharing a gift, but, uh, you know, I kind of put the crowd on mute. I got a game plan or what I want to see done out there or, I, or what I want to do or what I want to come across with. I just find like the point in the back of the crowd that I want to like, it could be a nail on a wall. It could be anything. You know, I just want to find something that I want to look at all night, and I look at that. I don't even think about the crowd. Of course, I can like physically hear them and see them, but you know, mentally, I'm locked in a whole other zone. My uh, my preparation for it is, you know, similar to I don't know a ball player or a boxer. I want to execute the game plan. You know, I want to do everything that I said I wanted to do. If I said I wanted to do these three songs a cappella back to back. 
without taking a breath or without taking a break, I'm going to do that. Because it's just me and the DJ up there. You know, no theatrics. You know, you ain't got no, like, blimps flying down like Travis Scott and all these, you know, all these guys with all this stuff that these guys got and those fireworks and all that. Not yet, you know, at least. But, um, you know, I just want to see you. I just want people to leave with um, the thought that, uh, you know, physically there ain't that many human beings that can do what he did on stage rapping, you know. You know, I, it just occurs to me sincerely what it reminded me of, and that was I grew up with a parent in AA, and I used to go to meetings with them. And they always do the serenity prayer in AA, which the, the thrust of which is simply uh, the will to change the things I can change, the, you know. Yeah the serenity to accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. I'm getting it wrong. Sorry, everybody who's in the program. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like it's like what you are asking God for in that prayer is to let you be within yourself and do this thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like you're not asking for special powers or anything. Mm-hmm. You're just asking to be able to do the thing that's within you. Yeah, just let me control what I can control and anything that I can't control, just... Let it be. Like, if the light man fall down off the damn curtain, that's on him. You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I pray he be all right. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, you know. Cause, you know, I perform with a lot of big festivals and things of that nature, and I see a lot of other guys, uh, you know, shows. They got dancers, you know what I mean? I think I seen Drake come on with, like, 30 hammer dancers one time. You know what I mean? You know, I got to perform. Hammer dancers got... <laughs> specifically? <laughs> Probably they so. They were wearing, ha- were they wearing ha- harem pants? Or Man. how do you identify a... <laughs> Man, I got to perform before, you know, a lot of that stuff sometimes, sometimes after some of that stuff. So it's like, you know, being in the lineup with that, I got to give them something raw, you know, and that's what I feel like I've been doing the past 10 years. Well, Freddie Gibbs, I really appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me on Bullseye. It was really nice to meet you and get to talk to you. Thank you, man. I opened up, man. Some of my girlfriends going to break up with me, man. I'm talking about all these girls, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Gibbs from 2019. His newest album, Alfredo, is up for Best Rap Album at this year's Grammys, which are taking place in March. Let's listen to a song from it. This one is called 1985. Yo, Pesci push your product, you sweeter than sweeter than Joe Exotic On the run like a soda, so pull the police's asses up, be chillin' in the Havana Police caught him with a whole thing, now they stitchin' main whole game work Gangland made a lane in it, did my name in it, it's a game murder All my reps in the crack files, check, I got them up like the vault I'm the reason your mama be smoking that Rilla when rippin' them contenders off Yeah, geek is beamin' up the Scotty in my crack lobby, I can smell the cane burning. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where just this very week, my daughter learned to ride a bike. And only two days later, when the road in front of my house was blocked by an enormous crew cab pickup truck, she screamed, hey, get out of my way. I'm biking here. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, Jesus Ambrosio, and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the band The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it all these years. If you want to hear the latest about what we're up to, you can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews up 
there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.